This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Stephen Bittner, host of History X Silo and special topics editor at the journal Kritika, Explorations in Russian and Eurasian History. The editors at Kritika have created History X Silo so historians who work on similar topics, but in different geographical or chronological areas, have a place to discuss their works, share their underlying assumptions, explore similarities and differences, and most important, step outside of their individual expertise silos. So much of what professional historians do fosters narrow specialization. We become kings and queens of our own historical hills, and not much else. History X Silo seeks to remedy this. If you are interested in the mission of History X Silo, or if you think you have an idea for an X Silo conversation, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. You can find my contact info on the History X Silo page at New Books Network. Today, we have what I know will be a compelling conversation. Two historians who have written about youth protest and nonconformity, but from very different angles and in very different contexts. In Flowers Through Concrete, Explorations in Soviet Hippie Land, Yuliana First uncovers a world that few outside observers of Soviet life knew existed, the world of Soviet hippies. Based on more than 100 oral interviews and an exhaustive array of archival sources, Flowers Through Concrete describes the origins of the Soviet hippie movement in a complimentary Soviet press account of American hippies, and among a lucky few Soviet youth who had contacts with or access to the West. First, then details hippies' fabled sistema of squats and friendly contacts, their love affair with rock and roll and intoxication, their migrations to the poppy fields of Central Asia and the beaches of the Baltic and Black Seas, their high-minded idealism and their sexual scandals, their unexpected longevity as a world both separate from and dependent on Soviet life, and most important, their myriad forms of subterfuge, co-optation, parody, and most of all, survival. 
Make no mistake, Flowers Through Concrete is an agenda-setting book that will shape the research and interpretations of scholars for many years to come. The world that first describes resembles not at all the gray conformity that for so long dominated Western popular and scholarly understandings of Soviet life. Using many of the same organizing rubrics, such as youth, generation, and protest, Anna Vandergoltz asked readers to reconsider the year 1968, long seen as the global high-water mark for the new left, particularly for its student-led iteration. In the other 68ers, student protest and Christian democracy in West Germany, Vandergoltz trains her historical sites on the political right, on the association of Christian democratic students. Though small in number, the association was undeniably influential. Many of its members would ride Helmut Kohl's coattails into the halls of power in the 1980s, the Young Turks of the right. Yet Goltz is not engaged merely in a political history of the association and its members, but in a deeper cultural and intellectual history of its ideas. It's criticism of the stasis of the 1960s, which bore some resemblance to the new lefts, its view of Germany's Nazi past, its role in the so-called reverse Sonderweg of the post-war period, and most important, the way the association's members constructed themselves as a unique generational cohort in the years that followed their student activism. Now I, I will formally introduce Furst and Vandergoltz. Juliana First is head of Department of Communism and Society at the Leibniz Center of Contemporary History in Potsdam, Germany. In addition to Flowers Through Concrete, she is the author of Stalin's Last Generation, Soviet Postwar Youth and the Emergence of Mature Socialism, and the editor or co-editor of the Cambridge History of Communism, Dropping Out of Socialism, Alternative Cultures and Lifestyles in the Soviet Bloc, in late Stalinist Russia, Society Between Reconstruction and Reinvention. Anna Vandergoltz is Associate Professor of History at Georgetown University. In addition to the other 68ers, she is the author of Hindenburg, Power, Myth, and the Rise of the Nazis, and the editor of Talking About My Generation, Conflicts of Generation Building in Europe's 1968 and co-editor of Inventing the Silent Majority in Western Europe and the United States, Conservatism in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, before I turn the conversation over to, uh, to Juliana and Anna, uh, I, I just want to alert listeners, it has just come to my attention that these two projects share a common point of origin um, in a uh, project on 1968. Uh, so now I, I will turn the podium over to Juliana. Uh, thank you, um, Stephen, for this exhaustive introduction and, and kind words. Um, I must say, I think I have to say I never felt like the queen of my own hill. I feel more like a worker's aunt uh, buzzing around. But um, it's still uh, uh, definitely a pleasure to, to speak with Anna about her book. And it, yes, it's true. It all started at the same time uh, in the same place. In Oxford, in a project um, run by Robert uh, Gildea, um, I called uh, around 1968, and um, I think it's sort of quite interesting to see what we both have done with our respective um, 
parts and and um, pieces and a lot of I think of what we'll talk about were part of the discussions then I mean no, most notably I guess the the east west um, that the project was large it wasn't only us it was uh, many uh, people I can't remember how many but um, somewhere about 15 16 people um, distributed uh, around Europe um, mostly western Europe but uh, a sizable number from eastern Europe and we had several workshops and I remember and we found it very hard to to make east and west somehow speak to each other um i don't know what uh, i know what what your memories is and if you think we have come past that or are we still finding it difficult to match the two parts of europe um i mean i think you've thought more about this than i have naturally because you've worked on a a movement with origins in the US and and trying to chart its influence and its shape in the in the Soviet space and I think for me the east west theme came in more when I talked about anti-communism and perceptions of the Berlin Wall European division and so forth but it wasn't as central I think to my project um I think for me the common origins are more methodological and um yeah, I mean, feeding the oral history into the project and thinking about the relationship between those kinds of sources and other kinds of sources. And um, I guess that's something we'll talk about in a, in, a, in a bit more detail. But I think we we took slightly different paths out of the project in that respect, I think partly because of the availability of different kinds of archives, um, but perhaps also because we related to the material in different ways. So I think that's interesting in and of itself beyond the the content, um, so to say. Yeah, um, it's interesting that you say that because um, I guess from my recollection that East-West is so central because I always felt that I was the odd one out. Um, but it was it was true even for the people who did um, Poland or the Czech Republic. And I, I, in a funny way, I actually find you have sort of bridged that in your book because you have then looked at the other 68ers. And in many ways, um, the whole of Eastern Europe were the other 68ers because they were not... Um, left-wing fanatics. Um, I mean, they were probably left-wing um, since both in Poland and in the Czech, Czechoslovakia, the reform movement was indeed rooted in a socialist idea. But um, in many ways, they were championing things uh, like human rights, um, mm. uh, freedom of speech, non-violence, which now appear in your book um, on the 68ers, which are often overlooked in, in German history because we are so fascinated by Dutschke and, um, and and that sort of narrative that has shaped 68, which has actually mm-hmm. excluded um, Eastern Europe to a certain extent. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I mean, that was one of the more surprising findings when I started looking at the kind of international context and, you know, the mental maps of the centre-right, that in some ways those were closer, at least more easily compatible, I think, with the way the world looked in in Eastern Europe and the fact that the, you know, the Prague Spring and just the phenomenon of dissidents and then in the 70s, increasingly all the human rights talk really um, build quite naturally on on these centre-right inclinations and ways of viewing the world. And so, yeah, you're probably right that that is directly related to many of the conversations we had in the 68 project. And I think I mean, it certainly would have been a very, very different kind of book, I think, if I hadn't been uh, involved in that project. And I think I probably wouldn't have touched certain questions. And I think I I would have done the oral history differently. So I think in that case, um, or in that sense, um, it's very much linked linked to the project. And also, you know, one of the first things I mentioned in the acknowledgements, it sort of is, is the, 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 the intellectual debt to, to that collaboration. 
Yeah, for me, it's even more so. I literally, I did not know they were hippies um, until I basically got the marching orders by Robert to say, go and find something on 68 in the Soviet Union. And of course, for all the case studies, the Soviet Union looked like the least promising and in many ways uh, proved to be the least um, promising because nothing much happened in 68 in the Soviet Union apart from literally seven people going out on Red Square and being arrested in less than a minute. Um but I stumbled um, over over the hippies, and I guess sort of that is the other big conversation I remember from the project, and um, you can still trace it in our books as well. Is the conversation is sixty eight more about lifestyle and a certain kind of way of of, of life and seeing things in a broader context, or uh, leaving the sort of physical context at all, and and going off in in, in sort of worlds uh, defined by LSD and spiritualism. Or is it about um, the political reshaping of, of the post-war world? And I mean, I'm sure you too have been to other conferences since then in, in 68. And I see that question also um, actually is, is very important when we come to speaking about the global south. Um, and in, in a way, I still haven't found an, an answer. I mean, for me, of course, in the Soviet Union, because of the absence of, of explicit political protest in that particular year, um, of course, the lifestyle became more important. But then you have a very strong dissident movement, which is very political. In fact, so political, they can never quite recognize that there are other people who are not political, but might also be dissidents. Um, and I don't know, in your book, you you, you kind of, um, you, you refer a lot to, to the Kommune 1, etc., um, but I'm not quite actually, I couldn't quite read out what is your, your conclusion about the lifestyle relationship to to the politicals. Uh, I mean, it, it feeds in, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. Um... Yeah, I mean, I think in the chapter between Adenauer and Coca-Cola, I try and, and tackle that most explicitly. I mean, I think an added complication when talking about the centre-right is that they have an even more kind of traditional conception of politics where it is really about power, about organisations and so forth. And so they don't really buy into um, this definition of the political um, as increasingly tied to the personal. Some of the women do, but it's not a shared uh, kind of conception of, of politics. And so I think the boundaries aren't as blurred as they are in some of these other movements. And yet, as I show a lot of what we associate with left-wing protest, and we kind of often infer that the cultural sides that have followed from that also reached, you know, the centre-right with considerable force, which has probably caused to rethink also the causality of that, that relationship. So I do think I tackle it, um, especially in that chapter. Um, and I think also in the ones on, the one on families and, and kind of post-war childhoods and the ways in which that shaped ideas about, about change and society. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, they are not really experimenting um, and are often quite um, explicit in their rejection of those kinds of experiments. But that's in and of itself a political stance, mm. I guess, right, that I I try and disentangle. So in some ways, this, um, this kind of definition of politics that they have then also makes them emphasize certain kinds of things in interviews and, and, and makes, makes the narrative often a lot less colorful in the sense that they don't think that the private stuff is really worth talking about because they never defined it as political in the first place. I mean, obviously it is if you, you know, you end up, you, you get married, you have a sort of quote unquote conventional life that is also 
a statement of sorts, right? Um, but it's it's probably that one chapter in which I tackle it most, most explicitly. But, you know, I was reading um, the, the, the material in your book on obviously, um, you know, drug consumption and all these other sort of experiments. And I just don't have anything equivalent in, in my book. I mean, my people are much more sort of straight in that way. But that is also part of being a centre-right person and activist, I suppose, even though, you know, obviously um, there was, you know, I mean, they had relationships and thought about style and clothing and music, um, but they never really tied it explicitly to their politics. And I think that makes it um, both more difficult and, and just different to um, mm. to then write about, you know, because it's not an explicit one. But I was wondering, kind of in general, I mean, you know, I was, I was trying to think of, <clears throat> obviously, we have these common origins, and yet I write about West German Christian democratic politicians, many of whom had fairly straightforward career paths in a, in a political party. You write about Soviet hippies, like on the face of it, they have very little in common in a way. And yet, reading your book, it also struck me that, you know, you're writing about a social movement we don't normally think of when we think of social movements in the Soviet Union, where I guess everyone thinks of, of dissidents, which you already mentioned as kind of the phenomenon that's much better understood. And I wrote about center-right activists when everyone thinks about the left. So in a way, we both picked sort of unconventional movements who aren't part of kind of the mainstream narrative. Um, maybe it's worth reflecting on that a little bit, what that... Um, what that has meant and how how that has shaped what, what each of us has done. Um, yeah, sorry. Um, yes, uh, I mean, I, I actually, I, even before you, you came to that point, I, I sort of wanted to say that um, in, in many ways, um, I, I, I don't find the division so straightforward because the visual evidence you provide in your book, I mean, you look at some of these posters the center rights uh, produced and you're like, wow, I mean, the, the CDU would not do that now. Um, and I had the, the sort of kind of semi-clad blondes and, but also some of the language. I mean, it, it, there was a kind of explosiveness in the language, which clearly um, they had adapted or it was part of, of the of the sort of common culture. And it makes you wonder, I mean, how much is 68 actually not all about political lifestyle, but actually how much is it about um, a, 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 a common culture people share and in many ways I sometimes did wonder how much is it actually determined where somebody will come down or is somebody actually an activist? I mean, I have a couple of uh, protagonists in my book where um, one part of a family was um, a hardcore hippie and then the brother would be um, a, a functionary. And actually, if one looks closer, their lifestyle isn't so different and their political convictions aren't so dis different. Just one basically chose to be active and activist in the, in the counter movement and the other one... Um, in, in in sort of in in the official side, and and I, I find I know that you're particularly interested in these too, but I do, you did find the people your stories about conversion some of the most fascinating stuff because it does sort of seem to suggest that maybe the content of the activism is more exchangeable than we think, and then that therefore the people we study might not be as marginal insofar as in many ways they could easily have been the mainstream. I mean. 
your left wingers clearly at the university in the late 60s, early 70s were the main streamers, in fact, to the point of where it was very hard to be a center-right uh, conservative. I mean, and I mean, I want to come back to that point because I think there's some really interesting stuff about like the polarization today that um, can be gleaned from that. But um, it, it it really gives this impression that... Um, is it is it actually that activism was in the air rather than that um, that so much politics was in the air um, compared to at least our childhood? I mean, the interesting thing is we are of course also part of the same generation, and the older we get, the more we become part of the same generation. Um, we all know that our generation wasn't it wasn't as polarized, but also wasn't as active. Uh, I mean, I, I know that some people call us Generation Golf, which must be one of the most damning <laughs> names <laughs> bestowed on a generation ever, because literally we we kind of lack that that kind of activism. Um, I mean, I would say we're Generation Perestroika from my point of of, of view, but. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. so um, writing writing counter and realizing one isn't actually writing so much counter, I think that is definitely a common theme in our books. Interesting, yeah, that you phrase it that way. I think um, the conversion stories and the point about, you know, why do people come down on a particular side or choose a particular mode of of being active, of trying to affect change, I mean, that's something that I... Yeah, grappled with, and I remember us grappling also with, with in the previous project. Um, and the converts I have in the book, or, or renegades, whatever you want to call them, who change their politics, um, do suggest that, you know, if you are committed, sometimes it's easier to stay committed, even if you change the, the sort of focus of that commitment, than it is to just leave politics behind, right? And so there seems to be something about being able to say, this is what I believe in, what I stand up for. And I think it's precisely that generational gap, I feel, towards that kind of ability to commit twice in one's lifetime to a political project that's quite instructive, because I agree. I mean, I think coming of age, really in my case, I mean, I remember the late 80s, but mostly the 90s, and it was sort of this end of history triumphism and there wasn't really the sense that they were these major political alternatives I think that's only returned in the last um, decade or so and I've noticed a huge shift amongst Georgetown students for instance in terms of the kinds of politics that they think are possible Um, and yeah I think that's something that's attracted me to studying the 60s and actually with hindsight also having studied the 20s before I'm really quite drawn to periods of of strong political polarization and experimentation. And I think partly because it didn't feel like that was the world I necessarily grew up in, even though there were all these old 68ers around. So there were stories about it, but it didn't seem to match um, the kind of moment um, I I was becoming sort of politically socialized in. And so I think there's something, something about that. But I do think, I mean, the outsider, insider, you know, are we writing about counter movements um, is an interesting one and an important one. And I think in the case of my people, they also stress that story so much, right? I mean, it's so much their political identity is so wrapped up with having opposed the left or having been the others that they constantly define themselves as some sort of counter, counter movement. I mean, on the one hand, wanting to emphasize that they were part of it, but also uh, on opposing sides. So I spend a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, to what extent that story is is self-serving. 
um, and was then really quite struck by a lot of these common beginnings I found. I mean, just the the substantial overlap in the mid to late 60s about issues, about demonstrations, about modes of of being active, the kind of joint conversations that they were having. And so I ended up telling a story of a kind of a joint beginning that then becomes more polarized and combative in the 1970s. So that's the kind of storyline. And then later on, it's the opposition that gets remembered and the joint beginning is sort of, I think, um, increasingly forgotten or sidelined in the memory. So it was also partly about disentangling um, the memory of this from the actual activism, even though part of the book is saying you can't really right disentangle those two elements. Um, and that was something I recognized in your book as well, that you're constantly thinking about which bits um, are in, arc- in the archive on the one hand, which bits get emphasized in interviews and chat groups and so forth. And those are some of the things I enjoyed reading about the most, just seeing how that story evolved on the part of the hippies. Yeah, that was, of course, another big discussion we had in the 68 project, what actually is oral history. Is oral history um, basically a means, I mean, as in Lucia Passarini, who, of course, also wrote in 68, of, of uh, tracing how people remember and, in a way, um, dissecting uh, their memory? Or is it indeed um, something that leads us to histories which otherwise um, just wouldn't have been written? Um I mean, I think in your case, um, and, and of course, you, one can see it when one looks at other different source bodies. I mean, I relied very heavily on the oral history, just basically I don't have any written programs and I had no newspapers and they, they were operating in a, in a sort of kind of um, information vacuum. Um, and, and your people, of course, left a lot of traces. So you had a lot of other things. But um, ultimately, we both opted um, to say that we believe interviews are more than just a means to deconstruct the subjectivity of our subjects. Um, and that was a big debate. And and um, I still, I, I mean, I very much feel actually, um, and of course it started with a project that um, I, part of my book is, is about um, oral history and, and, and um, how we can write a more integrated oral history that isn't sort of Passarini, but also isn't only history workshop. Um, that is somewhere between getting at the empiricism and at the same time, however, being aware that, of course, memory does play tricks, as, of course, the archival sources on us, etc. But um, uh, there was something else I want to say about um, sort of your your Christian Democrats and, and the way of how they fit into context. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, there's a story of triumphalism. I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, in, 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 your, in your story, of course, it's completely open. You know, they, they, they are the outsiders or the, the, the sort of lesser, lesser known people and maybe also the less interesting at some point. And um, and then they, they have this march through the institutions and, and really they become the people who shape our childhood, really, because, of course, um, I had the advantage that I know a lot of your protagonists just because I grew up in Germany, too. Um, while my people on the, on the first glance, they look like losers. They lose out um, at, at the sort of 99, uh, 1990s uh, transformation because they're not well-placed, become businessmen and they have no interest. And then they're, they're sort of, a lot of people I interviewed are uh, living well below the poverty line. 
And yet, of course, on the other hand, they win because the Soviet Union collapses um, and their vision of, of how to live, that basically you have the freedom to live your life in, a, in the way you want um, and you dress yourself in the way you want and um, you make not everything you do has to be connected to the collective good. Of course, that vision wins, um, even if they personally um, don't win. And And the other interesting thing is that Just like your conversion people, I have a very high percentage of people I interviewed who later on become what I would call broadly Russian nationalistic. Um, some very extreme, some only mildly so, but that basically from that sort of original internationalist idea, it was it clearly seemed to be possible to make a switch or to to continue into a very patriotic, strong nationalist um mindset without actually ever experiencing a break these are not people who think i had this this point of where i became different these are people who find being against the west um against um identity politics is part of of what they have represented as as youngsters as well and that that i find really interesting um that actually there is something about um believing and and acting and and that is our, what our generation somehow sidestepped because we were probably because we came of age at a time you call it the age of triumphalism i would say it was the age of where it, it sort of at least at the time it seemed to us everything is going to be good everything is going to be better and it was very hard i mean how one why would one want to wrap up against um, Eastern Europe becoming free and independent countries? So it was very hard to find the other at that point, at that moment in time. Um, and then, of course, the generation after us, they find the other again. And quite often the other is that what we thought we were all fighting for. So I find the parallels we have, um, which come out in our book and especially in yours about polarized societies actually to, to today really really quite interesting, especially because, of course, the war in Ukraine has um, given a moral bend to what we believe or what people believe in a way how like a year ago it wasn't uh, so strong. So and that really I found like when I was reading your chapter on Vietnam and also on the issue of nonviolence and who actually is in the moral right, is it the people who are for class struggle and um, want to um, get against U.S. intervention or is it the people who are saying we have to do everything gradual, there can be no violence, even if we are against violence. Um, and, you know, I mean, the rest, the left is still having these struggles. Um, are they are they for the underdog or are they for class war? And in, in many ways, um, I, 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 a lot of what you described about sort of 68, I don't want to call it going wrong, but sort of losing its track or losing its moral compass. Um, I find that as very, I found that very reminiscent of today. Interesting. I think um, when I think about the connections between my work and the present, I mean, I think it's been quite shaped by having written the book, not conceptualized the book, but essentially written the book in the US in the Trump years, um, in, you know, in a, in a moment where we talk about polarization All the time, and and clearly the the Republican Party in the U.S. has had a very different trajectory to the Christian Democratic parties. I mean, I was writing at the time of of Angela Merkel basically pushing the Christian Democrats 
further into the center while being surrounded by, you know, evidence of what what actual polarization sort of does to um, the political climate. And I think it made me it made me reevaluate also a lot of, you know, this West German or United German conservatism. And it just looked a lot less kind of reactionary. And, you know, I mean, I grew up in a, in a very left wing milieu where Cole and his people were basically the enemy. I mean, that was sort of what I, um, you know, was brought up on. And I think partly through writing the book, and this is, you know, perhaps always happens that you you start understanding your protagonists in a way that you didn't before. And there's a certain, maybe not identification, certainly not political identification, but just a certain convergence that maybe happens um, as you think so deeply about people. Um, but I think it also had something to do with this U.S. Um, perspective of, of thinking, no, actually, these Christian Democrats, I mean, they are certainly from an American point of view, you know, at, at most right wing Democrats of that. Um, and that did make me rethink a little bit the kind of conventional storyline about 68 sort of pushing uh, conservatives uh, kind of further to the right and and polarization and all of that. I think in many ways that's really not actually the storyline in the German context. If anything, it's a it's a rush to the center, and then critics of that you know cause would say, and then you leave the right flank open, and this is partly why we have the AFD. I'm not sure I agree entirely with that, but you know it's one way of of sort of looking at this. So I think I haven't. You know, obviously, in my field, the war in in, in Ukraine is, is a big issue, but not to the same extent. I mean, I think in your field, it's very obvious that it's made you all question lots of long held assumptions and really reconceptualize also the, the role of being a scholar and what that means. Um, I think it's had less impact in that sense on, on German history, of course. So I think my my touchstones have been more debates about polarization and really living in the US under Trump while writing about conservatism. I think that was a big had a big impact. Yeah, um, I mean, and, and of course, one has to say probably not only the war since um, last year, but the war that actually started in 2014. And I can see when I was thinking about how did I relate to my protagonist, I can see 2014 was a sort of um, point of reevaluation and it makes you also realize how you can write the same story or this, with the same evidence, how you can write different stories. I think if 2014 hadn't happened, I would have written a more possibly hagiographical account um, of, of um, hippies because initially I was very taken by the whole thing, especially because I never had a hippie past and I felt like maybe I should have. Um, and so I was sort of reliving through the subject and and they were fun. I mean, even, even the crazy ones were, were fun. And then in 2014, I Something actually, of course, which I knew I'd started to pick it up in interviews, especially because I often interacted not only with them, but with their children. I could pick up that there were moments where I would say, is this still, is it just that they are thinking differently? Do I have to file this away that obviously not every one of my protagonists will have the same values as I do? Or is this already stepping over a line of where I say, okay, there is a moral line. Um, and I guess you had that less because your protagonists in the end were quite centric. I mean, I had people frequently being anti-Semitic. 
Um, and then, as I say, nationalistic. Um, and then after 2014, that kind of stuff, of course, became, you, you couldn't just look at it and thinking, oh, that's harmless. We already had a war and uh, with thousands of people that um, and still I sort of kind of shied away and I think um, I mean I'm glad the book was finished when and on um, the 24th of February 2022 because I'm afraid that that would have I don't know if I would have really wanted to write it uh, in a way I think initially would have felt sort of frivolous now I can see how it contributes to to larger debates that are relevant but at that particular moment, everything seemed irrelevant. And actually, one of the questions I had for you, but you sort of partly answered it, but did you like your protagonists? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Um, yes and no. I mean, I think they grew on me. Um, and for the most part, I liked them much more than I expected. I think that's what I would say. I think I went in, you know, if you think about having some sort of hypothesis when you start your research. I think I went into this expecting to find people who were pushed to the right, whose positions hardened as a result of being confronted with a resurgent left. And I um, found extremely open-minded, very, you know, I mean, many of them are real sort of intellectuals who read widely, who were very well versed in, you know, the political theory of the day who were really a pleasure to talk to. I also found in terms of the interview situation, having interviewed a lot of, especially the West German um, left wingers, some of them, by no means all of them, but I did have a lot of very sort of uncomfortable interview situations where I felt like because of my, you know, general habitus, <laughs> like just being found deeply suspect and, and sort of being um, subjected to these sort of rituals of where you have to confess your own politics before you're granted an interview and where every kind of, and I write about this a little bit in the book, you know, politeness is just a social performance of conformity and therefore to be rejected which politically makes sense, but socially can be extremely awkward when you're in someone's home and you're just trying to be to be nice and friendly and they're giving you their time and so you're saying something nice about their house or, you know, whatever, and, and being sort of rebuffed. And all of that was a lot more comfortable with, uh, with the centre-right, um, which is, of course, you know, in and of itself political. And it actually took me a really long time to engage with that and to see that for what it was. And just, you know, I, I always had these um, these sensations of, oh, actually, that was quite a nice interview. And it sort of felt quite easy in a way. Um, why why is it so different, this whole setting? And then um, it was partly reading um, books like Sven Reichert's Authentizität und Gemeinschaft on kind of the alternative milieu and the long sections he has about um, kind of manners and, and rejecting those and the kind of emphasis on the authentic as a hallmark of the left that made me realize like what some of what I was experiences, experiencing was. Um, and so I, yeah, I mean, I think overall I did, I did find the, 
I mean, did like them. I did find the self-aggrandizing, you know, these kind of heroic male stories in particular, um, a little, I didn't mean tedious, it's maybe a bit judgmental, but you know, if you hear those over and over again, you have a certain reaction. Um, I really did like the women a lot. I think partly also because they told different stories. And I think, you know, that's maybe something worth reflecting on um, because that was one of my favorite chapters in your in your book on um, gala and uh, kind of hippie women. And, um, and also I was struck by the fact that this is the one chapter where you put yourself into the book, which is really something that I thought about and I do in very few places, but overall do much less. Um, and you don't really do it in any of the other chapters, right? And then in the, in the one on women, you're there and you're talking about your own thought process and me too. And it's very much written through the prism of the present. Um, yeah. And I wondered how you kind of thought about this inter intersubjectivity. I mean, I think for me, it's more in the background. It definitely shaped my interpretations, for instance, of, you know, these renegades who changed sides. I don't think I could have written that without seeing them, meeting them, looking at the way they dressed, you know, taking note of gestures, the way they related to me. I mean, they were just completely different people. And so that convinced me that the politics and the personal, you know, it is sort of intertwined and it was very obvious with them. Um, but I don't really put that in the text throughout, even though I would say it shaped my interpretation in important ways. And it's I sort can, of uh, hinted it in the footnotes. But I yeah, I would be really it's, interested. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I'm, I, I can I can reflect back what I, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm German too. So in many ways, there, there are certain clues which I think I pick up too, because we are so much of that same origin, the center-left um, 70s, 80s um, generation, etc., um, I found it interesting. So I mean, my question, if you liked them, was genuine because um, I could tell sometimes that you did. And then at other times I found that you were quite critical um, or even, I don't want to say dismissive because that would be too uh, too harsh, but you you questioned their narratives. And the strongest, I saw that in when you were speaking about uh, the Third Reich um, and their memories or their justification of not having to engage with Third Reich um, politics. Um your um, their their options their gift of um, we have all suffered or um, it was very hard for Germans after the war etc. One can feel that you don't agree that these are valid points to circumvent the um, um, the confrontation with the past and I think that is very much centered and rooted both in our probably upbringing, but also again in our generation, because I would say we are the generation who has been most, um, whose identity most rests on that confrontation with the past. I mean, I would say when I was a student um, in my teens, early 20s, um, until I basically became a Soviet specialist, that was very much what defined me, the, the, the sense as, as having this collective guilt on baggage of history and that was part of what made me German um, and, and and therefore sort of people who tell you well my mother worked very hard etc even though I can now from an adult perspective I probably have I don't want to say sympathy but I understand it more but as a, as a, as a youngster I would have very much rejected it and I could feel a little bit of that rejection in your narrative even though you never mm -hmm. 
you never actually say it. Um, and um, there were other moments where, where I, I could feel a, a waiting and I could tell that, that you yourself still define yourself as more left center. Um, and, and that's some of the politics also with reference to the Vietnam War. You, you're not quite taking, you, you express your skepticism about the narratives without ever saying I'm skeptical. Um, in the terms of the intersect, what you call intersubjectivity, I call it always the authorial self or positionality. Um, I found I made the, the observation that in books I always found the bits the most interesting when people talked about themselves. Um, and then, again, in your book, the, the few times when you say you make a sort of you, you talk about the difference between visiting people in their single family bungalows um, or in, in their in their Berlin Altbau, which of course is so stereotypical, but in a way, it's it's. Um, I found it a really interesting observation how clearly politics went so much into aesthetics. Um, I mean, the coal bungalow was infamous. It's it's sort of all what we don't want to be, um, and. I, I found that interesting because it made me reminded me again what I realized during my research that basically you you cannot enter a space without having a sense uh, and a feeling and a reaction to the space and you make an instant subject, uh, judgment and I mean if one reads sort of psychological research we know I mean how actually I think it's something like first eighty seconds we make our mind up about people we meet um, and. Initially, before the politics sort of started to take over for me, I was always a bit afraid that I would privilege the people I like more in the interview in history. And I think for you, there was a certain kind of pre-selection done because obviously some of your people became famous or very influential. And then obviously you had to speak to them. My people, nobody really sort of then had a sort of second life. So in a way, if I now concentrate on that group or that group, was very much up to my own judgment. And I'm completely aware how random in the end, of course, the book is. Yes, there were a couple of people who were leaders, but most of them were that. And then there were people I interviewed. And then there's a much larger mass of people I didn't interview. And it made me sort of wonder if, 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 if therefore the book isn't so much to the prison of myself that I, I really have to write myself in. But as you said, I actually was only brave enough in the last chapter um, partly, of course, because it takes time. I mean, it takes even more pages. The book is already endlessly long. If I had written myself, it would be double. <laughs> but I sort of wonder, I mean, I, I, what the next book uh, will be like. I don't know if you you have plans about yourself on your next book. I mean, not only in terms of topic, but like to what extent, how, how do we write it? I mean, I think the third book is we are free. You know, the first two books you still write for the career and the third book you you write for yourself. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm not so sure. I mean, I. I think that the. I mean, what I would call intersubjectivity, or just you know, putting yourself into the narrative. I mean, I think it's something I would love to explore, sort of maybe an article form, like to just have a space shorter where you reflect on sort of the methodology and um, and the self and and how that shapes uh the interview process um i think that would be a format i'd really enjoy i'm not quite sure that i will ever be um the kind of historian who writes about herself primarily i mean not that i cling to this sort of notion of uh, some sort of detached objectivity um but yeah i'm not i'm not sure that i i am that persuaded by um 
the need to, well, the need, but well, I guess the benefits and also because I do think there is a certain, you know, I mean, writing the 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 present through uh, the the past through the prism of the present and one's own political assumptions. Yes, we all do that, and history has to speak to, you know, contemporary audiences to be relevant, and why study it otherwise? But um, I guess I would just always be be reluctant to to make it a story about my own my own politics and how these people sort of relate to me. I think I I need a little bit more distance that's created by other kinds of sources and, you know, a bit more distance from the people. So I think in my next project, I'm definitely, I mean, some of it is going to build on some of these renegades. I'm interested in political conversion stories, but I'm also extremely keen to put more early 20th century people in there, partly because I don't just want to do oral history. I mean, I think it adds a tremendous amount and I'm so glad my book included interviews. It would have been a completely different book without them. Um, but I also I also really enjoy the distance that comes from greater temporal distance. And I think it, it frees me analytically. I mean, with this one, I've, I you know, that tug that you felt between, oh, on the one hand, you like them and then you're critical. I mean, I feel like I'm doing that in the book throughout. And it's partly because some of my sympathizing, I think, made me uncomfortable. And then whenever I disagreed, I kind of put that front and center. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, I think the what you mentioned about the, the chapter on childhoods and the Nazi past, yes, I think that's partly reflecting kind of our upbringing, but I think it's also reflecting a literature on the left in the 60s that's actually very critical of their engagement with the Nazi past. And so I think in the scholarship, we've long moved past this idea that they are the ones who deal with Nazism a certain way. Um, and so I think I was trying to echo some of that, right? Because that's where the 68ers have actually been criticized the most. And so I was taking some cues from that literature. And that's perhaps a little less obvious um, coming from the kind of Russian Soviet mm. perspective on this. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the role of oneself and the oral history and the sympathy that you, I mean, empathy you always need. But I, I do think there's a certain, you just have a relationship with these people. And I think for me, because I I like people and I like sort of, uh, you know, I was, I, I struggled with um with, with that positionality. And I, I'm not sure that I would ever do another project where that is my main source base, partly for that reason, I think. I, feel I, I can completely understand that. I, I mean, I, I thought I would do another project like that. And actually, it, it might turn out that the next one actually isn't. It's very tiring as well, because um, it tucks on you emotionally i mean i also agree on i mean obviously there is sort of there's a certain narcissism if you write about yourself etc um but i don't know i mean i find it interesting i think we as you say one can never really quite walk away from it and and it is i mean i realized that when i were thinking about my female protagonists and clearly you had a special relationship with your female protagonist and that the obvious conclusion is we are female um and therefore uh, there was something that spoke to us 
even if they weren't as central, they weren't in, in either case where they were the main movers um, or shakers. Um, in my case, because the main mover and shaker who were female had died. And in your case, because they just didn't get a word in with all these alpha males around them. I mean, some word, but not, not as much. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, 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 I did, um, I, I did find it interesting how, how we both um, homed in on, on our female figures and and wanted to understand something there, which possibly went a bit deeper than 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 with a man. I, I can't quite explain it, but I, I I was sort of very keen that I wanted to give them a bit more space, even though history hadn't quite given them the space. Um, yeah, that's really really interesting. Um, yeah. And then, of course, I mean, let's face it. I mean, I think, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but my writing was certainly shaped by the fact that basically I had two children and this, this process. Um, and I had to sort of negotiate a completely different life while at the same time researching. And I, I sort of, it made me, it made me wonder, I mean, how... It's yeah how how one chooses one's sources etc and how how books are shaped by 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 sort of like what one what else one is doing and I think especially the sort of kind of empathy bit um, I would say the horizon gets incredibly widened if you if you have um, children you have to look after other people I, I I think sort of empathy it takes on a completely different meaning and I, I I sort of can't quite put it into it I don't want to say well every book is only shaped by our personal lives but um, I think our books are I mean I could sort of read it in yours as well I think our books are the second books that, that they have a certain characteristics of, of, of our life phase and um, they're sort of exploring to, to stray a little bit away from from the books we have written first um, but they, they get also, they still want to make a point. They want to contribute to a to a to, to a debate. They they put themselves into contextualization. We're not yet sort of out there writing the crazy last works um, of. <laughs> yeah, where you don't care about what anybody thinks about what you do, right? No, that's that's true. And I think in a more concrete sense, I mean, you dragged your your youngest daughter all around uh, the Baltic states and. and and, and Russia and Ukraine interviewing, right? I mean, I did most of the research for the book before my son was born, but the writing process, of course, was very much shaped by um, by having a young child. And um, I mean, I think about this going forward just in terms of, um, you know, how much archival work for how long and how many different places are you actually um, able to do in that in that situation. So I think even when we don't reflect on it, I mean, just in concrete strategic terms, the kind of research we're, we're able to do at different points in our career um, are, are shaped by those personal um, The interesting thing is that, of course, these personal questions, however, are reflected in the era we study because, of course, all these questions like how do you do uh, motherhood and job and what is the personal and the political and at what point... Uh, where, where is that um, what actually does feminism mean etc I, I found it interesting we studied it and it was impacting on our lives and we were basically in a renewed debate um, about it um, and it, it, it definitely made me look at, at all the sources about um, our female protagonists differently and when I, when I read your book I, I, I did find it fascinating these, these, these um, CDU and uh, CSU 
activists, female activists who had then sort of disappeared or been shoved off into the Hans Seidel Stiftung, into the research um, uh, foundation. And, and at, at the same time, I mean, somebody like Gauweiler, um, who is still sort of meddling in, 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 in uh, right-wing affairs. And, and then, of course, Paul and his his circle. And, and, and I mean, I, I did find it, I, I, I pitied you a little bit because you had to read about all these people who meant nothing to you. But while I was reading about people who had populated my childhood, um, and um, it, I, I must say, I mean, when we come to the sort of point, we haven't really, we should have started up, but maybe, but I mean, I, I found your book fascinating because it, it, um, it, it, it put another gloss on the on the on the people I, I grew up with. I mean, obviously not in physical company, but certainly very much in mental company. Um, and um, yeah, that. It, but as you say, it, it it sort of makes you realize that in in the real role of historians is um, to to question again and again assumptions and go into detail and show that you know. I mean. Uh, it's not as easy as, as as we believed in our youth when Lieber Tod als Schwarz, rather dead than black, was the, the slogan, meaning at that stage, rather dead than being a CDU voter. Um, yeah, because that's the political color of the, the Christian Democrats yeah. in the in the West German setting. Yeah, and I I mean since we're on to um, you know, praising each other's work, it seems, or saying what we found fascinating. I mean, I think what I really appreciated is just the sheer I mean, the sheer number of interviews you did, which I'm sure was partly because you had access to fewer written sources and so you felt like you needed more of them to tell the story. But I think it just makes for such a rich tapestry of these people's lives. And um, the way in which characters resurface again and again. And I just really felt like I was partly reading some sort of detective novel about just, you know, what it what it means to find information about people who haven't really left a trace. Um, and you just get really invested in their, in their lives. And it, it certainly gave me a completely different idea of the Soviet Union and what kinds of lives were possible. Um, and how society functioned. And I think the main point I took away was about this interconnection between um, Soviet society or late socialism and um, and the hippie movement and how they made each other, right? And how it's both a counter movement, but also one that's intimately tied to how society functioned. And while I also write about my Christian Democrats in relationship to kind of West German society, I never really thought of the two as mutually constitutive in quite the same way. And I think that's a kind of language from kind of Soviet and Russian history that would actually be quite useful in some ways um, to, to adapt or at least to reflect on how some of that might be kind of tra- translated in what we do when we study um, Western liberal democracies. Well, thank you. Well, it's always very reassuring if the message one wants to convey seems to have arrived. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's it's interesting now you say that that, that that language is very much. I mean, yeah, it's it's very much in our. I don't want to say DNA, but it's it's shaped in our socialization as Soviet historians because um, that's already something we have been thinking about in terms of Stalinism and Stalinist subjects and. Um, I mean, um, Kotkin and um, Helberg, etc., speaking about the sort of making of the Soviet self, and mm-hmm. so that that is definitely a tradition um, we come from, and which is therefore obviously gets translated into late uh, socialism. At the same time, I, I mean, I must say the most fascinating 
chapters I, I, I found probably the one which I think you call combative politics, um, mm -hmm. the sort of usage of the other to make your point. And of course, the other one obliges. They act exactly in the same way as you want them to uh, act. So, I mean, the right-wingers who do a provocative meeting in a left-wing university and then the left-wingers oblige and they disturb the meeting and they, they look... Um, Uh, really horrible because they don't allow the the freedom um, of speech. But that's sort of it, it, that's also a joint um, conversation, and it's a joint conversation in that case, which doesn't constitute every, anything, but actually destroys. And um, I guess sort of I, I as I say, I, I I read your book, and I don't I don't want to be only a presentist historian, but I, I just couldn't help how how many of these. I mean, because in the end, and is a story. I mean, you, you do two things. On the one hand, you write about 68 as a story that goes wrong. Um, but also, of course, from the viewpoint of your Christian Center writers, it's a story that goes right because they, they come out and they uh, they actually do politics and they have success and they they turn out to not be uh, Nazis, but Democrats. Um, But um, this destructive moment is, is there as, as well, and, and they're not uh, they're guilty of it as well as as as, as the left. And, and I guess sort of I feel like we're living in this very destructive moment, and you can see Germany pulled back from that somehow, managed to to pull back from it in the in the 80s, and and terrorism subsided. And um, I mean now we have like grand coalitions again. Um, in fact, for probably too long, but uh, oh ha. And I, I sort of wonder, I, I sort of look at, at, at the world, I look at America, I look at Germany, and it's like, I, I hope I, I hope that um, there will be that pullback. I, I sort of wonder, are we in a similar moment or are we already in a moment that's further gone? I mean, there seems to be so much gap of speaking to each other. I mean, you have the gap between your other 68ers and the left-wingers, and but now we have the gap between countryside and town. We have the gap between... Um, woke people and non-woke people and, um, and and now, I mean, of course, in our field, we have the gap um, that comes out of how we view the Ukrainian war and um, what we, what kind of conclusions we draw from that. But yeah. I don't know if you see your book. You say you don't want to be a presentist historian. I mean, I was, I read your book and I, I thought, wow, this is so relevant. <laughs> right. I mean, no, I mean, I... I do think it speaks to the current moment. I had a, when I did the book launch in, in DC, actually one of the people who was on the panel was um, historian Andreas Röder, who is now the head of the commission that's rewriting the Christian Democratic Party program. Um, and he was saying that, you know, it, um, he's grappling with all the same issues that they were grappling with in the 70s in terms of how much of the cultural and social changes of the era to embrace, to what extent, you know, um, delineating your political identity by stressing the difference towards your opponents was actually important to mobilize and how that was a really fine line. Like on the one hand, you need to be modern and keep up with the times, but you also need to protect your brand and mobilize core voters. And I think that's the eternal dilemma in some ways of um, uh, conservative parties, right? That they've got to change and adapt and also um, uh, conserve and, and speak to these core voters. And so in that sense, I think a lot of the debates that are happening now within the Christian Democratic Party in particular sound extremely familiar to me. Um, and so, yeah, we're living in, you know, in a moment that has, has lots of resonances. And I think there's... Yeah, a reason also why studies of the 60s and the civil rights movement and so on abound in the US and 
um, I mean, clearly there's a lot that resonates um, about the current moment. Yeah, in terms um, of Eastern European yeah. history, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of the um, sort of reasonings your Christian Democrats give about their own motivations to to become go into the conservative side, of course, um, have to do with experiences in East Germany, experiences during the war, um, observations about the Soviet Union. And it's interesting that these are exactly the point we are currently reevaluating. I mean, that whole idea of of um, of the post-war period, especially as a period of, of imperialism and colonization and not only of liberation, um, is something which has been used to be so far out in the right that this wasn't really a serious topic to discuss. But now, um, now it is right, left and center um, because, of course, people like um, Kaya Kallas, etc., is invoking that in her justifications for the Ukraine war, and she's reopening that whole history which uh, had been buried only in individuals, people's memory, and it certainly wasn't uh, um, a valuable strand in, in historiography. Um, but now, now we're we are trying to apply the language of colonialism, and it gives a very different picture of the Soviet Union, but it gives a picture of the Soviet Union that is surprisingly close to the picture your Christian uh, Democrats um, had and, and gave to you. Um, so it's it's... It's interesting that something that even a year or two ago would have almost smelled a little bit of um, sort of um, Third Reich apologism, apologetism, um, now is actually becoming a, a mainstream of, of um, history interpretation for, for the Soviet Union. Are we at the end of our conversation? I think so, except if you want to say something from the viewpoint of another Soviet historian. <laughs> well, uh, I, I want to say that on behalf of the editors of Kritika, uh, thank you, Juliana and Anna, for your conversation today. Um, you can find links to the books they have discussed on the History X Silo page at New Books Network. Uh, and please keep an eye on the History X Silo page for our next uh, History X Silo conversation. Uh, thank you to both of you. Goodbye. Thank you.